Hello everybody and welcome back inside the Shark Time for a penultimate episode of the pod for this season. Um, the good news is, you know, we're here actually talking about rugby. Not many teams in the Premiership this year have the opportunity to say that they competed in a Premiership rugby final, which obviously Sale did last weekend. However, the elephant in the room for the podcast recording, as it may be today, is that obviously we've taken a week to uh, get over what was ultimately a spirited um, but slightly disappointing outing from Sale on Saturday afternoon down at Twickenham as uh, unfortunately they fall 35 points to 25 to Saracens who uh, were probably deserved Premiership champions for the 2022-2023 season. Now there is obviously a lot to unpick here and for the first time in a few weeks I'm really pleased to say we've got the entire mob on the podcast I'm joined, of course, by James and Alex. Uh, Alex, hi, how are you doing, mate? It's been a, it's been a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm all right now. I had to have a very, very quiet couple of hours after the game where I just didn't really talk to anyone. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. Cheers, mate. It's, uh, you know, as you say, it's nice to be involved at this stage of the season. I think we did ourselves proud on the day, um, and. You know, I think there's more to come, and and you can you can feel that. So once you've kind of got over the initial disappointment of the game, and we'll talk about the game, kind of I've consoled myself with looking forward. You know, our back three were 22, 22, and twenty three, or whatever it was. Um, you know, we've got we've got so much young, exciting talent who were playing in that game, um, and and we came pretty close. And and you know, I think it it was closer than the scoreline suggests, maybe um, for most of the game. But, yeah, I agree with you. Saris were just too good, and, and they were really, really on it as well. That's the best I've seen them play in a, a long time. Um, you know, I don't know that it was helped by us, but it was a fearsome performance from them. And, and, you know, in a big final like that, against a team who've played a lot of big finals, you need to have your best day ever. And you need them to, you know, not have their best day ever. And I think they were pretty close to their best. And, and we just... And, and to be honest, I think we were absolutely superb for 60, 65 minutes and then the, the juice just sort of started to run out slightly towards the end. But that's completely understandable in a big match. So, yeah, listen, loads of optimism for the future. As you say, Saris deserved winners. No problem with that. Um, and, you know, after a week of reflection, I think I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with the day. But, yeah, um, I'm glad we weren't doing this, uh, you know, 5pm on the on last Saturday because I would have uh, I would have yeah. not been useful. There was there was definitely a tactical decision here, listeners, to to wait a week. You know, it's hard to not get caught up in the emotion of the day and obviously, you know, not not feel a bit despondent. Um, so we've had the best part of five, six, seven days now to to compile our thoughts and and James, how are how are you doing? You know, with that with that extra week's buffer. Do you, do you know what? We definitely needed it, didn't we? Um, just to put it into context, um, and it's fantastic to see the, the club so celebratory. I think if you know we end up losing maybe three finals, we might say that we we're kind of celebrating before we got to Twickenham. Um, and you know, maybe there's a mindset thing up here. <clears throat> didn't see the same sort of thing from Saracens. Um, but you've got to make the most of these finals days, and, and you know, particularly for the owners. I, th- I think it was a really important event, you know, for bringing the club together, bringing the supporters together, bringing the team together and just go, you know what, we can mix it with these guys. And actually, if we're not back there 
two or three times over the next five years with the age profile of this squad. I think it would be a surprise, you know. Um, so tremendous occasion. We'll get into the game, but I completely agree with Alex's summary analysis, um, which fits in really with what you and I said last week, Lewis. Well, last pod, Lewis, which was, you know, we had to have our best game. And Saracens would have had to have been off their best, which we felt there was maybe a 50% chance they wouldn't have their best possible outing. And in that situation, we would win the game. As it happens, we didn't have our best game. We didn't do us, we, we, we didn't play poorly. We didn't have a situation where we didn't turn up or anything like that. We did ourselves proud, but we didn't execute everything perfectly, which is what our best game means, right? There were mistakes. There was interesting substitution decisions, all sorts of things, which meant that we weren't at 100%. And I, and I think that Saracens were at 100%. And Owen Farrell probably had his best game in probably about five years. Uh, you know, he was such, he was so dominant on the pitch. It was, he was, he was head and shoulders above every, everyone else. And uh, it bodes well for England when we do our, um, when we do our World Cup review. Uh, for the Patreon, maybe in the summer. Um, but yeah, um, look, thank you to, to to the guys for getting us to the final, giving us this opportunity to support the team at Twickenham and raise the profile of the club across rugby supporters. Don't forget, not just club rugby supporters, but probably supporters of rugby who only usually follow international games and things like that. Maybe watch the Premiership final and suddenly you've got Sale walking out at Twickenham. And I think psychologically, it's a big boost for us. And we can take that momentum into next season. I mean, there is a lot to unpack, and we need to be careful not to go too in the reeds on on this, and and kind of keep uh, keep our perspective. Uh, you know, we could do a three hour pod on this one, given that there's so much to talk about. But I guess maybe uh, to to kind of start us off, um, you know, Alex, interested to get your thoughts on this. You know, I, I, I've said this to a few people. Sort of separately uh, about you know why why the game was sort of won and lost and James has all kind of alluded to it already but and and you, yourself have has alluded to it as well um kind of felt like just in those in those moments throughout the game there was just a little bit more experience the the calm heads the the mistake free um, play of some of those veteran Saracens players and I I know I said this on our chat immediately after the game but it really felt like there was a there's a bit of a golfing class between our back three versus the uh, the Saracens back three on the day. Uh, Owen Farrell had a fantastic game. George Ford had a had a good game. Kind of really felt like you know when 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 push came to shove, there was just those little extra moments from the Alex Goods, the uh, the Elliot Dailies, the Owen Farrells, the guys who've been there, uh, you know, to the mountain top a, a few times already. Um, what, what what was your assessment? Uh, of the game in terms of what was the key difference between the two sides because that that was that was my prevailing thought from watching the game and obviously in, in the week since where where was the game sort of won or lost for you from a from a Sarri's and a sale perspective yeah i think i think that's a really good point and that was one of the main factors that kind of experience and i agree in the back three you look at and this isn't as as you said you know George Ford had a good game, Aaron Fowler had a great game. That's sort of the same in the back three, you know. None of our back three had a bad game. I think everything had a good game. Just Sarri's back three had a great game. Um, and it's quite hard to compete with that Sarri's back three. They're so um, sort of linked up and, and unified and know how each other play and know how Farrell plays as well that it makes it just, you know, 
really difficult for for a team like us who you know we're still learning about George Ford don't forget but you know, and I think we've seen that we've been so focused on the Rob Debray George Ford combination, we've kind of forgotten about the rest of the combinations around that. Um, that, but also just the fact that, as I said at the top, you know, these guys, young guys. Joe Carpenter was playing for Sale FC earlier this uh, year, like, or well, earlier this season. Um, you know, this is that's a meteoric rise, isn't it? So, um, I think, I think it's one that in time our back three will continue to improve. But if you look at kind of that execution. Malin's scores scores tries and creates penalty tries and whatever because he is always on the shoulder of Farrell and I think those just like key moments those differences Farrell was having an excellent game and setting up and it's Malin's who's on the end of it scoring it and we probably just didn't quite get into that rhythm I think I think we got into that rhythm at times but we weren't in that rhythm over the eighty um, and if if we then like look at I don't know, other players around the team. I think it's kind of the same thing. Like a, Gus Ward, a good game, but not a great game. Um, you know, in the forwards, good games, but not great games. I, I think I think at the end, the obvious one to point out as well, that we should probably chat about, is the line-out kind of went a little bit wrong at the end of the game um, in the last 15, 20 minutes. And, and that cost us positions at times. But I think even in the first half, it was sort of like Sarri's just looked like when the opportunity was there, they took it. They didn't. We didn't give them that many chances. But when the opportunity was there, it was cutting through and beautiful rugby and executed well, and everything just went to hand. And we just had to work really hard for our tries. And obviously, we got tries. But I think the effort we had to put in to get there meant that Sarries were always going to be. You knew there was always another try in them because it was not easy for them to score, but they just executed so well. Um, and I think, as you say, a big part of that comes from back three, but also. Farrell setting up those those kind of positions and stuff, um, but you know, as we say that that is that is kind of not the risk. But we, if we wanted experience in the back three, we could have played Byron McGuigan or um, you know, and we could have started Tom O'Flaherty maybe. If we, you know, it was kind of a. I think it's it's definitely a risk that was worth taking because in two years' time or three years' time, how many times will Tom Roebuck and Aaron Reid and, and Joe Carpenter have been there? You know, maybe, hopefully more than. At least once, but even if not, at least they've been there once, and and I think you'll see a big kind of not improvement necessarily, but just a more reflection of kind of what we saw at the Leicester semi-final in terms of confidence, in terms of accuracy, in terms of execution, in terms of you know being at that test match level intensity that Saris were at. I think it was that Malin's try. You know, the, the the first one of the game, if I remember correctly, that that started to to break it open where. To, to your point, Alex, you see it's broken field play. It's it's a it's a broken play. Sales, you know, sales defense has been fantastic in the twenty-two. Um, you know, Saracens are scrambling a little bit, but all of a sudden Max Malins is there on the trade of Owen Farrell. There's a there's a, a simple sort of draw and pass, and he goes over for a try. And that that level of fluidity, we we just didn't necessarily see that from from a sale perspective. How much of that is, you know, uh, you know, tactical strategy how much of that is a player like Malins who's obviously been in those kind of key moments and same with Farrell knowing that there might be an opportunity here those were the kind of one percenters the five percenters I think on the day that did make a big difference and you know 11 clean breaks to Saracens to four from Sale it kind of shows that when when the game just started to fracture a little bit they were a little bit better at taking advantage and I, I guess that probably goes to my next question to you James which is 
you know, for, for the vast majority of the game, it really felt like a pretty even contest between Sale and, and, and Saracens, particularly in that first half. And, you know, where were the fault lines from, from your perspective that, that ultimately meant, you know, Saracens just had that extra 10, 10 15 uh, points to, to get them over the line? Well, I, there's so much to unpack in that question. And Alex has mentioned a few of them. I think, you know, when when you've got someone like Rob Dupree putting in a, you know, 50-22, um, you know, and, and things like that, you know, that's the kind of thing you need to, you know, to take territory and put pressure on the opposition. And I don't feel that when we did execute something excellent like that, we were then able to really put our foot to the throats of Saracens. They were able to really execute those moments of pressure really, really well and, and exit from those moments of pressure on the whole pretty well. Um, you know, we, we had to pretty much, you know, really earn our tries through, you know, some, some quite extraordinary play at times uh, or extraordinary finishing. Um, I, it wasn't really through Saracen's mistakes, if that makes sense. Um, and it's the same, you know, with, with the lineouts, you know, just, just, just at the moments where you really, momentum was picking up. You know, Alex says that we were pretty competitive through to 60, 65 minutes and then the lineout especially went completely off the rails. Well, it did. Well, guess what? That was at our moment of peak momentum, really. Um, you know, we were ahead in the game. And, you know, if we'd got the next score, penalty or anything, you know, really is a completely different feel because then Saracens have to chase the game, which means that it's not just about clever footballers, which absolutely have. Maitland's, Maitland, Good. I mean, these are, you know, the reason why they're playing so late into their careers, a couple of them, is just because they're excellent footballers. They don't need the pace. You know, they, they get the right, they make the right decision every single time. But when you have to chase the game, you have to take an element of risk. So it's not about making the right decision. It's about making the risky decision every time. And that's different, right? Because we know that we can still put pressure on from a defensive perspective and turnover ball. So there's a few, there's a couple of things there. Line out is an example, but I just felt that we, we weren't able to keep the pressure on for a sustained amount of time, which led to any opposition errors. The next thing is, I think defensively, I felt that we were overall pretty good, but I don't think it was our best defensive performance of the season. Um, you know, these clever footballers were able to pry us open a couple of times, and we saw a couple of tries that you don't often see against Sale, <clears throat> especially in the midfield. You know, and, and okay, credit due to players like Barrel and Malins for, you know, for, for getting through, but we looked like just any other rugby side defensively in a couple of moments in our own 22 defending Saracens attacking, which, you know, I don't know whether that's because, you know, you've got extra adrenaline, maybe you're, you're extra fatigued, you know, maybe we're missing a couple of very important players from a defensive perspective, you know, in Ben Curry, um, you know, who's obviously often is defending in that kind of 12 sort of channels sort or of 10, 12 channel, making really good defensive reads. And, and also turning people over. So, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a few things there. And, of course, where Saracens didn't make any mistakes almost at all, we did make we made a couple of mistakes in, in, in red zone type areas. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't want to dwell on this because Joe Carpenter has been, I mean, we'll do the season reviews, right? But he's probably up for both young and player of the year. Like, both of them. He's been that good. Um and the the mistakes he made in the final were only a couple. I thought he had a good game. You know, if I was giving him a score out of 10, it would be 7 out of 10. And in fact, most of the things I saw in papers and things like that gave him the same. 
he wasn't quite as dominant in the air and he made a couple of errors in red zone. Uh, you know, the first try for Saracens, bounce to the ball, that's really tricky. But, you know, on another day, we've seen him clean those up. Uh, you know, stay, stay on his feet. You know, we, we end up clearing our lines to our 22 and it's sort of danger over. Saracens try, um, you know, and then again, you know, we, we, we've, we've seen him, we've seen him make a couple of errors there, haven't we, with another one in the second half, which kind of, we weren't out of the game at that point, but did, you did feel that that was probably it, um, at, at the death there. So, um, look, uh, there was a couple of errors, the line out, the kind of red zone clear up at the back, but, you know, these, these things kind of happen and, and, you know, you expect one or two anyway, I think, under the pressure and circumstance of a final, honestly. It's just whether they lead to tries or not, you know. And, um, you know, the difference is that Saracen's made zero. <laughs> pretty much zero unforced errors, which is pretty unheard of in finals, honestly. Um, so the fact that we got within the, the, the points that we did and the fact we were ahead at like 60 minutes... I felt was goes to show that if the wind was blowing in the other direction, we could have won that game. And if we make another final two over the next two or three years, surely it's law of averages almost really that you know we'll be able to get over the line. Alex, do you do you think it's fair to say then that there were kind of two pivotal moments in this game? And feel free to disagree with me on this. Um, the the first was to James's point when we were I think it was twenty five twenty two up. Um, we had a penalty in the Saracens 22. Option to kick was was declined. We we actually kicked to the, the line out. We go for the short throw. Uh, the ball gets turned over and Saracens clear. I'd argue that's maybe number one. And then the second one would be that that Joe Carpenter charge down, uh, uh, you know, in the sort of 70-odd minute, which obviously eventually leads to, to, to that final try from a Saracens perspective. Do you think that's fair or do you think there's anything else that's worth calling out? Yeah, I think because when we lost that line out, and I can't quite remember the detail here, is that when Theo Dan kicked that 50-22? Um, because I remember that being, I think it was Theo Dan, whoever. Basically, I think we lost the, we lost a line out in their 22. And, I, and then, I can't remember whether these were consecutive, but then they kicked 50-22, um, kicked it like back into our half. And then also... There was another line out we then lost in our own half, um, and I think I remember them being really big. But I suppose they are big because it's kind of like you expect them to get the ball back. So when you don't, you think, "Oh, this is a big moment." And and similarly with kind of the Carpenter turnover, a uh, charge down, which is obviously a turnover. I think these moments stick in your mind because you're expecting something to happen in sales favour, and then it goes the other way, and, and you immediately like. Right. Okay. This is this is not what I expected, and that's that's obvious. Whereas you know, Saris are just attacking and putting it through the hands and finding space. It, it doesn't feel like a crucial moment because it's not a turnover, and obviously, like possession is massive. But it did, and I, I agree with you that if you if you're looking at kind of key twists of the knife in a way that really sort of finished that finished us off and finished the game off, then not winning the ball in that twenty two, I think. It just gave Saris a bit of belief. I think there was a penalty they won as well, a turnover penalty. Um, and you can just feel when they get their momentum and, and all the, you know, cheering. Um, I thought Itoje had a quiet game, so we can cheer in, actually, but we'll come on to that. Um, and 
I think so I think you're right I think it's kind of they were the the crucial moments that you pick out but I think the reason for them I don't I, th- I think it's the pressure and I think it's the fact that we kept getting put back in in our own half and and I've kind of said before when you play Sarries you you really have to focus on territory and you have to play the game in their half and that's what we did so well when we beat them at home like two or three years ago whenever it was um when Rob Dupree was on loan and it's always been, it hasn't changed. They play the same kind of game of rugby. I know their attacks got a lot more fluent, but fundamentally, if you're playing in their half, you can you can beat Saris. Um, and I think it just felt like every time we tried to get into their half, they were able to push us back, either through our mistakes, you know, Manu having the ball ripped off him, I think was not a big moment because it happened so early in the game, but it's just one of those where you think, you know, Here's Owen Farrell. And you know Owen Farrell's on a good day when everything's going his way and, and you know, him ripping the ball off Manu, it's going his way. And, and I mean, for the first 20 minutes, we barely, uh, I say first 20, but it felt like the first 20. It might have been the first 10 or 15. We just didn't seem to really have the ball. We just kind of, every time we got it, kicked it back to them, which is fine. But we couldn't get that. And I think later in the game, as that pressure told, and that's where those crucial, like, game-changer moments come in. Because to me... These sort of game changer moments sometimes can you can have two really even teams who are playing really really well and they're the difference. And ultimately, I think if it hadn't been in that game, if it hadn't been those moments, it would have been another moment because the pressure and the dominance was with Saris. So yeah, they're the kind of you know they're the symptom, but they're not the cause of of why we why we lost. If that makes sense. I, I do really like that that reference to, to Theo to Theo Dan fifty twenty two. It's the sort of thing where when you've got hookers kicking those sort of territorial games, you're like, oh maybe maybe the game isn't going our way and there is a ter- there is a momentum shift there. Yeah, well I mean if you compare the kicking of the hookers, then Akers was you know <laughs> was was average. So and that's where the game's won and lost in finals, how good your hooker can kick. So as we've always said. <laughs> um and, and and like you said, that that um that Farrell rip on to Alangi again, like you said, it's just, it's just kind of like okay, right? So and so is on his on his game today, and it does, you know, it's those little moments you are like it, it does kind of put you on the back foot a little bit, um, particularly because it's such a significant momentum shift. And and I, I guess speaking of momentum shifts, James, you mentioned this already, and I want to go back to it. We talked about the moments that swung it. You, you mentioned the the there was some interesting substitution choices. You know, Simon McIntyre was having maybe the game of his uh, his, his, his second sale career. Um, he had Riccatoni on on ice skates uh, at, at times in that first half. Um, you know, he, he goes off after, I think it's about 45 minutes. You know, the front row sees a lot of changes. You know, Gus War uh, goes off after 50 minutes. What was what was your thoughts on on the uh, the, the tactical substitutions that, that were taking place? I mean, look, it's difficult for me to kind of criticise here because in, in the pod last week, I was arguing for early changes in the front row because we've seen that in the last few games and it's worked really nicely. Um, I, I think, you know, Alex Anderson sort of said in a post-match interview maybe about two or three games ago, he said, you know, he hadn't got the likes of Sam James and, and, the, front, and the front row and Rafa Quick onto the field early enough to sort of sh- shift the game. I think it was actually in the, um, uh, it was maybe in the Champions Cup, I don't know. But um, 
He then has been making since then really early changes in the front row and getting his good players, you know, some, you know, people like Bevan Rod onto the pitch early to affect things, which he did, of course, in open field play. But I think that the dominance in the scrum was such a surprise um, to us and an, an ability to win penalties, which is so critical to get field position and and and, and win finals. That I felt that you know, especially Acker and Simon McIntyre. I felt should have stayed on for at least another fifteen minutes each. I mean, they were they were they, they were both. If you actually were giving scores, I'd say that they were two of our best players on the pitch, Simon McIntyre and Akavan de Merva. So you know, to take them off really so, but before even really getting a stride going in the second half. Now it looked like genius when Bevan Rod basically. <laughs> I mean, it was you know for a loose head prop to to. Or just past halfway, instigate a move on the blind side, right? And then go over and score themselves one phase later or two phases later. They're ridiculous. It's a ridiculous state of affairs. But we lost our dominance in the scrum and actually it turned completely in the scrum and actually Saracens were able to use that as a tool in the end to actually put pressure on, bring the referee around. And it was part of the momentum shift the other way in the end. And I would like to have seen those two stay on for longer. But look, you don't know what the, the what-ifs and, and buts might have been. We might not have scored that try from Bevan Rod, so we might not have gone ahead. Uh, and, and we might not have had the opportunity to stay ahead. So you just don't you just don't know. But my feel is, is if people are still dominant, still operating at eights and nines out of ten, um, haven't had a you know, so haven't had a significant drop off in performance due to fatigue, um, then you basically just keep them on the pitch. Um, and uh, even if you've got good players left on the bench, do you know what I mean? That there's kind of a crossover there. So um, I, I felt that that was the. I, I understood the Rafi Quirk decision. I think he's been coming into some form in the last two or three games. Um, and you know you don't want to wonder what if in finals. And he's a what he's a what if kind of player. If we didn't end up bringing him on for till seventy minutes or something, you might have gone oh, blooming hell. He could have just created something from nothing and scored a try. That you know that kind of thing in the final can win you the game. Also, Gus was kind of, you know, relatively quiet. Um, definitely, it was as Alex said, it wasn't a poor game, but we've been used to him being a very big personality on the field, um, and he just wasn't able to impose himself on this final uh, for whatever reason. So uh, that was the right decision for sure. Um, so yeah, I look don't want to be again critical because you know you, you don't know the counterfactuals, but I, I think Simon McIntyre and Akaban de Merva were just to do one over on your opposite numbers in the way that they did. And also, the other thing to, to note, of course, is that Theo Dan came on early, really early, right? Had an extraordinary game. He used to be in the England mix sooner rather than later, no question about it. But if you're then bringing on your hooker with 15 minutes to go with a really exhausted two, I think it could have made a really big swing in those last 15 minutes. And Acker, you know, he was able to compete with Theo Dan's um, uh, you know, mobility around the park. And I think the other reason why it was the wrong decision is because without Ben Curry, we knew we were losing some ability to compete on the floor. Um, and Tom Curry is very good on the floor, but he's not as good as Ben and has and has been a, a declining force in that area, really, for uh, two or three years since the last World Cup. Um, and, you know, we knew Ben Earl was going to be there pretty quick. And I think that losing Acker's ability to compete on the floor, Ashman's not in the state. He's not the same type of hooker in that sense. Um, so I felt that that lost us some balance at the breakdown as well. 
anyway, look, you can you can find holes in everything if you really try. Uh, <laughs> um, on the whole, we've got most of our decisions right, you know, and you, you don't want to learn too much from this and go, okay, well, we're going to keep Simon McIntyre on for 70 minutes and end up breaking him. You know, we know we've had serious injuries in the past. He's been a revelation only this year. I mean, what a player. You know, if, if you if if you had an England coach that's just going to pick on form, that there is not a better loose head in England than Simon McIntyre today. He's had zero caps, hasn't been knocking on the England door. He's past 30, so he's not an investment for the future. But if you want to go and win the World Cup in three or four months' time, I don't I don't see anybody that's better than him. Well, you heard you heard it here first. Simon McIntyre Bolter for the uh, the England World Cup squad. It's a good point, though. Um, I mean, right? There's, there's there's loads. There's still loads to go into here. We've got to be, like I said, very careful. We want to keep this one moving over at a fairly brisk pace. Twenty five minutes in, first mention of uh, you know Bevan Rod deciding he wanted to play scrum half for a little bit. You know, really really nice bit of play there. Um, we obviously haven't mentioned the Tom Roebuck try yet either. Um, a bit, bit like you know, a bit like the penalty try in in, in the first half that Saracens you know were uh, forced sale to concede. You know, just just a contestable ball. You know, a slight misplay. Some good footballing skills, and and you know what a what a moment that would have been if you if you want to think of uh, think of what if moments if Sale had gone on to win that that little moment of, uh, of brilliance from Tom Roebuck, uh, you know, would have gone down into the annals of. Sales history. So obviously we haven't even touched upon that yet, and I, I don't want to suck all the air out of the room. Um, so I'm going to go back to you, Alex. You know, any any other kind of key moments or final thoughts on on the Premiership final? Just 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 very quickly from my side, I thought Sean Maitland had a really good 20 minutes, <laughs> and then and then he went off and and uh, Elliot Daly came on and did the business. But I thought he had a really really good you know first first uh, first 20 odd minutes, and um, we probably won't get a chance to talk about him again. So to shoehorn that in so yeah Alex any anything else you want to flag yeah I think I think we I think we've talked about some of the positives from a sale perspective but I think we should talk about some because there were so many um are you right that robot try was absolutely superb made I think it was Mayland's um you know look a bit uh silly with his footballing skills um and I like you say great great sort of just him you know, dotting the ball down, and you can see he celebrates to the camera, like as he sort of gets up, and then he, but his momentum takes him past it. It's such a great bit of footage that, yeah, as you say, it'll just get forgotten because we didn't win the game. But had we won the game, you know, we'd be clipping that up and replaying it over and over. Um, I think Manu had probably his best game in sail shirt and probably his best game in rugby for about well, since the England New Zealand semi-final, I reckon. Um, he was absolutely superb, gave us loads of go forward. Um, and, and I think was once he started humming a bit, that's what got us back into the game because we we struggled a bit to kind of get any momentum in any ground in the first, like I said, 15 minutes or so. Um, I think George Ford had a good game, but as we said, was I think there were some quieter performances from our backs. Um, Johnny Hill, I thought, was pretty outstanding for kind of 60, 65 minutes. I think when the line-out started going wrong, we're not sure. I think that probably was more uh, taking Acker off than uh, a Johnny Hill issue. But I think Hill, have, he's done himself no harm in terms of World Cup squad. Um, and, you know, he's it's, it's interesting because he's been such a penalty machine this season. And I think there's been a few sale fans who are sort of um, not quite sure about the signing of Johnny Hill. But I think he's really shown his value in these big games. 
and what he's done as well, which maybe you know you haven't seen as much from a George Ford or a Tom Curry, is he's been there in the trenches. He's you know been doing it at Bath away and you know in Newcastle at home, as well as doing it you know semi final final. Um, and that's not to say obviously George Ford was injured and Tom Curry's away with England and and that kind of thing, but it's just you know you can see that he has stepped up for the big games, which is obviously you know, why he signed in England International Alliance. So um, I think that was really positive. Um, I agree with James. I think we missed Ben Curry a lot. So I'm very sort of disappointed for him to miss this. You know, injuries. He's not been, got injured much, but his injuries have just been at the worst times. His England call-up initially, Premiership final now. So hopefully he gets some luck. Um, and, you know, talking of, decisive game moments um Ben Curry in that semi-final it's not in the game but you know that's that's a massive one I think um but yeah I, I think there's loads of positives I think uh, I just think it's worth you know sort of focusing on them and, and and mentioning that if you look we scored three tries at Twickenham we gave it a really good go and and like like we've said you know we weren't we weren't that far off um and, and maybe a couple of crucial moments towards the end, but there's there's plenty to go at. So, yeah, if we can keep this squad together, which it looks like we're doing, um, then then there's plenty more to go. So yeah, that's my other thoughts. Any any others from you guys? I'm trying to think if there's anything else good I've missed because there were really good moments. You just kind of get lost in it, don't you? And you you go into a bit of your your reverie and and don't bask in them quite as much as you maybe should because you know we haven't been there for 17 years or whatever it is. So uh, should enjoy them. Just, to, I suppose, just a shout out for someone like John Ross, just to you know say you know he, he finished his career on a massive high. Same with Jackson Ray, both sort of two warriors, really sort of going at it on the park, and just to finish your career in that moment. I've mentioned the Rod, Rob Dupree kick um, out of hand, which was fantastic, and it wasn't just the kick; it was just the kind of living in the moment that he did afterwards, where he was like just screaming yes and and. It just it just fed into the sort of festival party atmosphere, and I think that's the final point I'll make on the final. I wasn't there, but it came through, and it came through on social media, on YouTube channels, on the way our fans were interacting on Twitter, to actually coming through on the television. You know, we our fans went down there and they sung their hearts out, but more than that, they had a great time, and to see like people like. Barry Stewart and Chris Jones going down there in their 2006 kit uh, and things like this that just sort of crept in. It was a real coming together of the Sale Sharks family um, in, in, in a way that we really deserve after many years of kind of rowing uphill. A few, a few games now filling the stadium and I feel that we've got a really good bedrock to build off this into next year. It's almost a shame that it's a World Cup year in a way. Because like I think there's an excitement to try and get to September and get to the early season, but you know getting into Premiership Cup and kind of four thousand at the stadium isn't really the way I think to sort of start the season. I'd, I'd be seriously looking if they relax Dula Axe rules like we've said before from Premiership Cup. You know playing the game away from the AJ Bell just to get keep that festival atmosphere. There's something really around the, the fan experience that our people got on the journey down to Twickenham at the game. Everyone from the club was there, a real close-knit community and family. And, you know, I felt, I felt really sort of proud. To, I wasn't there, but I felt really proud to be part of that family. I think we, 
we really showed ourselves in the best light on the biggest stage, on the field and off the field for this occasion and really earned the respect of a lot of people in a way that, you know, a couple of years ago we were saying that we were kind of the underdogs, bunker mentality, um, you know, like you know, poor marketing, um, this kind of thing, you know, uh, everybody's least favourite team. You know, I, I think we're, we're getting to sort of, you know, to the stage where we're, we're almost people's, you know, kind of neutral club that they kind of, don't mind winning well we'll see you know if we win the next five premierships in a row people aren't going to like us like the saracens right um but i i think that's just a massive credit to everybody on and off the field so congratulations i, th- I think that's a really interesting point particularly around the bunker mentality and, and kind of maybe what what this will what this this occasion will mean for the club you know in two three four years time one of the things we, we try and push on this podcast, or at least I try and push quite a lot, is what, what, what are the kind of moments in the, the – what are the line in the sand? What are the kind of key moments? And, you know, it talks a lot about why I think someone like Faf de Klerk is probably more influential than, than a John O'Ross in, in, in the, the sales story of the last five, ten years. Um, you know, because it's about those big moments. It's about reaching out to a bigger audience. You know, John O'Ross making 20 tackles in a game is pretty admirable, but it's not – it doesn't have the same cultural impact as, as you know, some of the stuff the clerk did, right? And I really like this idea about we're, we're moving away from being shoehorned as this kind of, you, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's us against the world. It, it's the North versus everyone else because it doesn't need to be like that. And actually, if Sale are going to be successful as a club on and off the field, you want to see a bit of growth where people enjoy, enjoy watching Sale, whether or not it's because of the defensive intensity or whether or not it's because of our attacking ability or because of the players that we're bringing through, whether or not that's players we're bringing from abroad or players that we're you know, cultivating. How many England, England rugby fans now have a soft spot for Ben and Tom Curry because they're playing for England? It's those sort of things. And, and this did feel like a bit of a watershed moment for, for where this club is going to be because if we only identify as you know, the, the Northwest club who are, you know, the scrappy underdogs and, you know, it's us against the world sort of thing. There's going to be an artificial ceiling in terms of how far we can go. Um, and, you know, Saracens have done it a slightly different way. They've kind of reveled in in probably being, you know, quite unpopular and, and the salary cap stuff probably hasn't helped or has helped in that regard as well. But I think it's really interesting because, like you said, it wasn't just about, you know, Coming down to Twickenham and you know, you know, thumbing the nose at you know the rest of English rugby, you know, the sale fans and the sale marketing team and, and everything around the club. It was all about like being there and, and celebrating it as a moment. And I thought that was that was really cool because that points to you know bigger and better things. Um, in you know, in in the game, particularly at a time when you know there are going to be fewer clubs and it's going to be more important than ever that. Um, People enjoy watching Sale uh, as part of uh, as part of Premiership Rugby, so I thought that was really cool. Um, Alex, anything from your side before you know, in terms of that kind of off-field impact, uh, before we touch upon some some news from the last week? Yeah, I think just to echo what you guys have said, that openness we've got we're seeing from the club now, and I think it's 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 kind of led by the, the leadership of the club as well, isn't it? You know, you can see that. Alex Anderson's so open with the media and, and willing to talk and willing to be honest with them as well and really give honest answers that that the amount of national media coverage we get now is just ridiculous. But there, you know, that's it's it's so great to go on BBC Sport and read articles about like Rafi Quirk growing up in and playing at Broughton Park and 
um, you know, Sam James saying, oh, I watched the final the telly, or telly when I was a kid or whatever. I was a ball boy that season. You know, those, there's loads of great stories around this club that I think are getting told now in a really positive way as well. But yeah, just to, I mean, I couldn't believe it when, so I wasn't there either. Um, slightly, very disappointing, in fact. Um, but I was watching it and in a pub and you could hear the sail fans chanting through the screen and like and this is just really um sort of you know a one-off story but you know people were coming and sort of going oh what what's what's this oh it's from uh saying oh it's premiership final sail against saracens blah, blah, blah. and you could just hear people chanting sail and and people are drawn to that and and you think about the number of people who will have sort of watched that final you know, it's been on in a pub or it's been on at someone's house or, you know, they just caught it on telly because they've got you know, nothing else on. Um, I think it is a massive moment for the club because, as you say, the, the fans that are in Twickenham made an absolute racket and in such a good way. And it, it's so impressive to hear that. And I think when you think about where this club's been and where it kind of is now, um, it's just a credit to... It's credit to everyone. It's credit to the fans for sticking with it and, and travelling down to Twickenham and... and it's a credit to the club for kind of being as open and, and being as, you know, um, entertaining as we are now on social media. I think the build to the final was brilliant. Um, and it's a credit to the players for getting us there. And it's a credit to the ownership because they've put in a massive amount of work to kind of make that happen. And it's just, there's such a field of thing around the club. And I think that day at Twickenham emphasised it. And, and that's why it's, it feels very different to 2006 because 2006 felt like, wow, this is brilliant. We've done it, but we kind of, and this isn't disparaging 2006, but we did it with Phillips and Andre coming in, brought in to win the league and you will win the league. And then, you know, after that, well, you know, if you look what happened the season after, um, a lot of players who were kind of, you know, we had that Northern core, but I think we, we had a lot of players who were kind of brought in, say, right, we're going to win the league with this club. And then, that squad kind of disintegrated quite quickly, didn't it? Um, whereas this feels like it's the the heart of it is not about winning the league in 2023. The heart of it is about improving the club, making the club better, and, and making Northern Rugby better. And you can see that that and the men's side has sort of co-opted that Northern Rugby Matters campaign, which let's not forget is about the women's rugby, but it's it's representing the whole club now. And you can see it on people's T-shirts and stuff. And I think you can see we're getting that message out there. And it's all kind of becoming centred around that unintentionally. I presume unintentionally anyway. Because, I, I, you know, from what I knew, it was about women's... This kind of raising the crowd running for the women's rugby. and it's But it's becoming a whole club motto. And, and it's about, Northern, as you said, Northern rugby isn't, you know, we're going to sit up north and we're going to whinge about the RFU and we're going to, you know, say everyone, no one likes coming to the north and BT Sport never shows on telly, which we've done on this podcast many times. So I'm holding my hands up. But Northern Rugby is about Joe Carpenter. It's about Tom Roebuck. It's about, you know, Devin Rod. It's it's all these these players. But then it's also about all those fans who are there at Twickenham and who are making the noise. And the more people see that and the more people... And it, and it comes back to the semi-final against Leicester. The more people who kind of experience that and experience that atmosphere... Because I do think that, you know, there's a certain thing in the Northern fan base that when we want to, we're going to 
being really loud and we're going to be almost football-esque and people are going to get drawn to that. But it's still with that friendly kind of rugby atmosphere. So the more we can show people that and get that message out there, which is exactly what we did at Twickenham, um, the better it'll be for the club. So long may it continue. And yeah, just a massive shout out to everyone who was there because I'm sure they've been told this anyway, but we really could hear you. And it was absolutely superb to hear that ringing round because it, it felt like not a home game but certainly uh, a sale crowd that was that was backing us it almost felt like an england game it, you know as in like it just felt like everyone in there was supporting sale so um yeah very well done well, we will return to talking about the the season writ large and, and what sales progress this year means moving forward when we do our uh, end of season review in a in, in a few weeks time um but the news hasn't stopped since uh, since the the end of the Premiership rugby season, and there's actually a bit of player personnel news, a personal favourite of mine, um, which we have to touch upon uh, in a little quick fire round. So um, I guess we will maybe start with the uh, slightly sad news that uh, Kearney Eustazen has been announced as uh, as leaving Sale Sharks to return uh, to uh, the South African Sharks, the the Celsius Sharks, based in Durban. Obviously, Ustaz in 34, he's been at sale since May 2019. Um, you know, so over over four years at the club now. And uh, I guess, James, you know, from, from your perspective, um, probably not a massive surprise that someone like Ustaz is returning home. Maybe a little bit surprising, you know, with the timing of it, given that, you know, he wasn't on the, the outgoing list that was released by the club uh, earlier this year. Yeah, so so yeah, it's, it's come a bit out of blue. You know, I think his last his form since uh, the beginning of spring has been exceptional, and his best at sale. Uh, I think it's fair to say over the course of that period since twenty nineteen, he probably hasn't had the impact a Springbok tight head would be expected to have. Um, you know, um, but you know, even so, it does leave us in a situation. You know, where okay, we've got a back Harper, back Jones, back Ford or bring in a tight head. Usually tight head is the kind of position where you don't mess around. Uh, if you want to you win the win the premiership, you know, let's say there's an injury to Shauna next week and he's out for the whole year, you know, do, you know, are you confident you're going to win the premiership with Harper, Ford and Jones? Probably not. So, you know, I'd imagine we will go to market actually. Interesting that Will Griff John's back on the market um, after being, I mean, leaving Scarlet. Uh, there's a few others there. Obviously London Irish's situation might bring about some opportunity as well. But, um, you know, obviously we're, hope, we're hoping to see more of Harper next season. He's clearly got the, the legs. You know, you can't... Cooney, you know, going home to South Africa, absolutely fair enough. Like, I've always felt, you know, you're living far away from home. Anybody ever wants to go home, whatever the timing, no problem. You and Ashman's situation was different in that regard. Um, so, you know, all the best to him. Thank you for all your efforts, helping us get to a Premiership final. I hope that that was a fitting way to sort of end your time at Sail Sharks and go well down back in Durban and, and hopefully you can push for a World Cup spot um, as well. Do you, do you think this points to James Harper moving into that backup tight head role next year? He, 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 but as, as of today, yes, but I'm sure that the club will be looking out for an experienced tight head who could back up Shonnet, um as well. So... Um, uh, you know, I think with Harper's uh, injury record and the fact that for whatever reason Joe Jones has never been trusted, we, we've always been a fan on this podcast. Never done himself uh, 
you know, like, you know, he's never had the opportunity really to sort of push his case. And Cal Ford is definitely ready for that step up from Sale FC now into the into the senior squad, definitely. But even so, like, you know, that, that feels a bit young and inexperienced and injury prone to me to have a have a go. You know, if you're going to have three, if we end up bringing in Luke Cowan-Dickey, which is a good segue into that, you know, you, if you end up again with three hookers of the depth that we've got with Tommy Taylor as third choice and you've got James Harper as second choice tight head, for me, it's kind of the wrong way around. Um, you know, if you were looking to make a shot at the uh, the title, so I'm sure that there's someone going to come in. That's a really good point about Joe Jones. You know, only only had 11 appearances for the club. You know, this this season, um, with on on average 30 minutes uh, a pop and uh, only a handful of starts as well. So, you know, really interesting. He seems to have fallen off. You know the, the the radar a little bit. You know, obviously went to Coventry. You know, about about eighteen months ago, and then got brought back again this year. But he's only really been playing, you know, spot minutes in the Champions Cup and you know a, a few Premiership Rugby Cup uh, appearances. So it'd be interesting to see what happens there. Um, well, you've you've led us in perfectly. Let's let's talk Luke Cowan Dickey. So this one isn't confirmed, but the the indications are extremely strong uh, about uh, Luke Cowan Dickey uh, potentially joining the club following his failed medical at Montpellier. And I know, James, um, you know, you brought him up, so I'm going to push this one back to you as well. What, what, what do you think about this? You know, um, would, would, in theory, be a direct replacement for, for you and Ashman? Um, you know, it seems relatively low risk, assuming um, Luke Cowan-Dickey doesn't take a fancy to, to some of the pubs in Manchester ahead of his second medical. Yeah, look, on, on Luke Cowan-Dickey, he's an international player. He's got a relationship with Johnny Hill. In a lot of ways, it's a no-brainer. Um, he might be on a bit of a cut-price deal as well. I think it's very hard to say no to, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, what it does do, and, and, and this is the it's the, it's the trade, um, is that we're on a reduced salary cap situation. And, you know, we are going to be stacking three hookers of an age profile around 30, uh, who all have international caps, um, you know, and, you know, no other Premiership club comes close to having three hookers in their squads of the quality of Tommy Taylor, Aka van der Merwe, and then if Luke Cowan Dickey actually joins as well. So it's, it's a huge investment in the hooker position. Um, you know, there has to be probably quite a lot of confidence that we don't have somebody that's quite ready to take that third choice position. Um, then the question is, how do we manage that alongside the tight head role? You know, Nick Shonnock goes down injured early season. James Harper is having to play the whole season. Joe Jones is the next backup. You know, what's more likely to win you the Premiership final? I'd say, you know, having the depth at, depth at tight head is the thing that you shouldn't mess around with, honestly. Um, that said, you know, it's difficult when Acker's had his injury problems, Tommy Taylor's had his injury problems. You know, and, and it does feel like we need we need another hooker in with you and going. Um, the question, of course, is you know Luke Cowan-Dickey's not a succession planning situation here. You know, all all three of them are going to be coming to the end of their careers at about the same time. Now, maybe Aka might go back after the end of next season. So we're thinking, okay, well, then you got sort of like you know uh, another year for somebody to come through. And then you'll end up with Luke, Tommy, and and um, and and maybe an Ethan Kane, etc. Um, you know, for for the season afterwards, maybe there's something there that we're not aware of. So it's partly 
succession for 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 Aka going home. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who do talk about Curtis Langdon and and having let him go. Look, that decision was made a long time ago. But what was so good about that was the age profile. At 25 is about right. Um, you know, you want that seniority coming through. So we have a bit of a gap there in the succession planning, but you have to trust in the coaches. You have to trust in Axe to make the right decisions. And guess what? We've just got really close to winning the Premiership. And when you're offered England's, you know, and, and Lions' first choice hooker to come and play for you for a couple of years, it's pretty difficult to sort of turn that down because... You know, you get to that Premiership final. You you may be starting with Luke Cowan Dickey, and you bring an Aka van der Merwe off the bench for impact. You know, that blimey, that's going to be pretty difficult to deal with, even if he's Saracens. So, I think my conclusion is let's go ahead and sign him if he's there, and we can get him at good value, um, and trust the coaching staff and Axe to make sure that we have the right succession. Um, and, you know, it's all, all guns blazing for next year to win the Premiership if, if we're signing Luke Cowan Dickey. All I'd say is let's make sure that we're not making a compromise at tight head. Um, because for me, that's more important position that we have that depth chart there. Yeah, I mean, especially not, not bad for a smash and grab option to replace Ashman if the goal is to win uh, a Premiership title in the next, you know, one to two years. Um, and then finally, one final signing. This one confirmed. And Alex, I've saved him for you because I know your thoughts about uh, backline play. Um, Toulouse Vianu, who many Tail fans might remember as having previously turned out uh, at Leicester Tigers for a number of years uh, in the in the, the previous decade, uh, has been announced as joining Sale on a one-year deal. He, Viano is 32, and I'm actually reading the press release, quite interesting about how this has come about. You know, his wife is, is English. He wanted to, uh, they, they wanted to return back to uh, England. Um, and uh, notably, uh, Viano very close with Manu Tuolangi, as you'd uh, expect, given that they played you know, quite a long period of time together at Leicester. And it sounds like Tuolangi's had quite a, quite a significant pull uh, in bringing Viano over, a bit like how John Ross did for, for a few of the South Africans, you know, in, in that sort of 2016-2017 era. So, so Alex, you know, what what are your thoughts on the, this signing? Because obviously, you know, four or five years ago, Viano was probably the most electric player in the Premiership. You know, where where do you see him fitting into the squad now, given that obviously he's on, uh, quote-unquote, the wrong side of, uh, of 30? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? He's had um, sort of injury and, and other problems, not other problems, uh, but injury problems, and just not kind of got that um, regular game time that he was getting at Leicester when, when he was lighting up the Prem. Um, I think it's it's sort of similar to what, as, as James said about Luke Cameron Dickey, uh, if he's available, which obviously he is he's coming, um, it's a low-risk play, isn't it? Because, you know, we've got a really good back three, but we probably do need some depth. Byron McGuigan's off, Woodward's um, off as well. You know, so we've got we're effectively going into a season with Robot Reed, O'Flaherty, and and Carpenter and Luke James. Um, so there's probably a bit of depth. It's probably in slightly the wrong position. We'd probably rather have a winger than than a fullback. But I think, yeah, again, as you say, sort of difficult to turn down someone who's got that that ceiling and that potential, and um, with that relationship with Tuilangi and of course George Ford as well. It's there's there's plenty of opportunity for him to kind of find his best form again, and I think you do find that if you look at if you look at players when they're happy, 
um, and when they want to be somewhere, you you get better form, and 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 that goes for kind of personal life as much as anything else. So if if you know he's in this, as you say in the situation where his family want to be in England, I think you'll probably see a increased performance and a, and a bit more enjoyment on the field if he's happy in in kind of settling in Manchester. Which obviously with Manu around and and a really good culture around the club at the moment, I think should be should be achievable. So I think there's a lot of upside minimal downside for me um based on where we are with cap and and obviously with you know with McGregor and Woodward going I think this is a a really good kind of swap in effect so obviously it's a replacement but if you think about it in those terms um I think it strengthens the squad I think it brings a bit of um a bit of unknown and a bit more sort of intrigue to our back three and 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 that experience and you know listen if if Joe Carp it if it pushes Joe Carpenter to get better and better, pushing for that fullback spot, then I think that's a good thing as well. Um question where Luke James sort of sits in all this. Um I guess is he gonna look at moving back to twelve? Is he gonna be a fifteen? Do we know? I think it's that's that, that's the really interesting part for me. I I think you're right as well, because obviously McGregor's off, Woodward's off. Sam Hill is is leaving, you know, we've not seen Connor 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 Doherty for a long time now due to due to injury. You know, Viana is an interesting player in that he predominantly plays fullback, but you know he can spot start on the wing. You know, so in theory you have maybe him and O'Flaherty backing up Reed and, and Roebuck, and uh, you know if if if, if required. Um, but yeah, you, you do wonder a little bit about Luke James and whether or not Sale are bringing Viano in as as backup fifteen. If he is backup fifteen, well then yeah, where does Luke James go? Because Luke James can't play on the wing, and you would assume. Is he going to move to the centres? There's there's a few there's a few few more questions than answers probably at this stage. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm sure there'll there'll be a plan. Won't there? You know, you don't just especially with the cap as it is, you don't bring in players willy nilly unless you've got a real you know plan and reason to do that. So, I think I think it'll be a good sign, and it's it's obviously a very exciting one. And just in terms of the brand, it's it's if we can get him playing at his best. It's the sort of player who will get clipped up on highlights and who will, you know, it's it's like a, and I think we've got the the fan base and the success and the and the social media presence and everything else. We've got kind of that really good marketing that we can really push that as well. I think I always feel that Newcastle have got one of the best highlight real players in the league in Matteo Carreras um, and Adam Radwan as well. And it never kind of gets as much traction as they probably deserve. And hopefully that's one that we can kind of, if we can get, you know, it's him stepping someone or whatever, then we should be able to push that um, and really sort of make the most of that element of it off the field as well. But yeah, I think, as you say, it's, as I say, it's, it's a low risk and high reward this really for me. And, you know, I think, if it strengthens the squad, listen, is he going to start a Premiership final next year if we get there? I, I know that's a ridiculous way to talk, but you know, let's think, let's really think about this as we sign it. I think if you're looking at a player like Cameron Dickey, there's a good chance. If you're looking at a player like Biarni, probably not. But is he going to be in and around the squad? Is he going to be making a lot of appearances? Is he going to contribute throughout the season and be important? I think so. Um, and listen, he might have an outstanding season. I might be sat there with egg in my face next year when he's, you know, starting fullback. But that's again, it all comes back to that only upside because you've got Joe Carpenter and Luke James, so you're not 
It's not like when we had to when we didn't have a fullback and we signed Simon Hammersley. This isn't that kind of you know that kind of signing where you're thinking right, he needs to be really good. Otherwise, you know, we haven't got a fullback. This is we've strengthened. And it is just representative of where the club's at generally. You know, with strengthened, it's a good sign in, in a position where it will help. But, you know, you're coming in and you've got to play well to earn your place in this squad. And I think that's what you've seen this season with players like, like well, I suppose Jason Wolf was obviously injured, so we didn't really see any of him. But even then, when he wasn't injured, it's a real struggle to get into this squad now, which is good. It creates a, a, a kind of, you know, there's a really good level of, I'm really trying to avoid using the words high performance culture here. Um, is, is really sort of, you know, it, ma- it makes people play better and it makes other players better because if you've got someone behind you who you know has done it at a really high level, in, as I say, that's going to make Joe Carpenter play better week in, week out. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's a really good sign and it's good. It's interesting to see the timing of all these, as we've said at the top, you know, it's kind of post-premiership final, but it's just, again, it comes back to that great communication from the club, get to say thank you to Kearney, get to welcome um, Toulouse and then and then see where we go with Luke so hopefully we're building a, a really solid squad for next season and we can build on this season's foundations because I think that's what we all want to do isn't it we, we, we don't want this to be 2007 um, next year we want it to to be its own era and uh, hopefully a successful one absolutely well said so thank you so much for everyone for bearing with us that's the pod for this week uh, we, we took the full week, you know, to collect our thoughts, and hopefully you've uh, you've enjoyed the pod. As mentioned, we'll be back, uh, you know, in a, in a couple of weeks' time to look at the uh, the season writ large. Um, have a few more weeks to think about that Premiership final defeat and, and what kind of comes next for the club. You know, there might be even more signing news to go into as well. So, thank you to everyone for listening. Just to echo Alex's point, thank you to everyone for making such a massive racket. You know, at Twickenham last week, you know, as as we've said a few times, it was very obvious and apparent how big of an impact the Sale fans were were making on the day. Um, and hopefully this will not be the, the last time we are sat here talking about a Premiership Rugby final. So uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you to Alex and James for joining me. And uh, we'll speak to you guys in a few weeks. 